This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress for July 26, 2023. The NPC podcast is where we meet to discuss the purpose, process and people of the life sciences industry, and today we'll continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Impress is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Impress tailored best-in-class solutions at www.impress.com. Today's guest is Sharnil Ibrahim, Life Sciences Practice Leader at Deloitte Canada. He'll join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. To start today's conversation, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon, coming to you once again from high in the gondola overlooking all the action below. And the word action is synonymous with our action-oriented pharma industry consultant and health policy expert, Mr. Mark McElwain, who always puts action ahead of words. Mark, no doubt you want to skip the small talk uh, today and just get right down to things. Skip the small talk? No way, that's not the way we do it here. In fact, I think all the best podcasts out there, they don't seem to take themselves too seriously. The more nerdy the subject matter, the more niche the narrow casting the more important it is how they set the table. So for our podcast, it's about setting up a relaxed conversation with guests who've got a perspective to share about the industry we work in. So I guess I'm good to dive in about now. Over to you, Mitch. Well, maybe we need to do some bonus episodes of only small talk. You think that would work? Nah, I guess not. Also present and accounted for is James Shea, the general manager at the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in Montreal, uh, actually in uh, wet Montreal today. Jim, in your experience, do you agree that the world can be divided into talkers and doers? Yep. (laughs) I think the floods are really intimidating our Jim Shea. Anyway, we are your multitasking, talking and doing podcast hosts, known as Jim, Mark and Mitch, because all the catchy brand names have already been snapped up by action-oriented groups such as Threads by Instagram and Summerlicious. Shanil Abraham is joining us today in the gondola. Shanil, welcome. Glad to be here. So you are a partner in the uh, life sciences and healthcare consulting practice and the leader of that practice with Deloitte. Can you tell our listeners more about your organization and its current vision? Yeah, happy to. So for those of who don't know, Deloitte is the largest global professional services firm that provides consulting services, audit services, tax, financial advisory, and risk advisory. So globally, we're more than 400,000 people, and in Canada, just over 14,000 people. So in my role, I oversee 19 groups in healthcare and life sciences consulting that span across health strategy, health operations, health data and AI, digital health, health tech, and health human capital. And there's approximately about 1,000 people in that healthcare consulting business. Now, our vision in healthcare at Deloitte is making the health and lives of Canadians better and our society and economy stronger. And the way that we do it is that we focus on some of the biggest signature issues in our system, whether it's 
helping clients redesign new healthcare models, whether it's helping clients optimize and liberate the health workforce, helping clients modernize and future-proof in a digital world, or helping clients stabilize physical assets, whether it's meds, equipment, supplies, what we call building resilient supply chains. So we feel that by focusing on these type of signature issues, we ensure that we're partnering to solve the biggest and the meatiest issues that plague our system. So that's what we do in a nutshell. It's not a very narrow brand. Sounds like a lot of stuff that you guys do. So it's Jim here. Now I guess I have to do some talking. I'm getting away from the doing, or am I doing while talking? I'm not sure. I'm a bit confused right now. So uh, what strategies, approaches, or solutions do you think healthcare and life science organizations can build or leverage to bridge the access gap and ensure that equitable healthcare delivery is happening across the unserved communities? Well, that's a big question to start off, Jim. So I'm a huge advocate in Canadian healthcare organizations creating a system where everyone thrives, regardless of gender, race, age, sexual orientation, or disability. But unfortunately, we have significant inequities in our system that impact the health of these groups. And I strongly believe there's, in fact, a lot of awareness from leaders in healthcare organizations when it comes to inequity. You almost talk to any leader, whether they're a CEO, a deputy minister, or the like, and they recognize that historically marginalized and underserved communities and bridging the gap to access is important. The challenges lie when we go beyond awareness and understanding why it happens and what we can do about it. This is why we need to employ the right strategies and solutions, which does require us to understand what's driving those gaps that are generally rooted in social, economic, and environmental experiences. So I feel that there's a slew of strategies that we can employ, but I'm going to boil it down into three that I think are most impactful. The first one is around data and digital. What better way to understand drivers of health than being able to leverage data to understand populations at risk? So the first strategy that we need to use is expanding the use of data, which means more collection, more sharing, more integration of data, more insight generation so we can understand the impact of socioeconomic factors and just tailor actions accordingly to those people who are in need. The second strategy that I've seen to be quite important and critical is bringing the voice of the underrepresented community at each step of the problem and across the solution lifecycle. So if we as leaders want to truly bridge the access and create solutions of underserved communities, we need to incorporate their voices to help build sustainable solutions. And we need to understand what equitable outcomes mean, because what a meaningful outcome entails can easily vary. And we need to build trust with these communities to ensure that they're actually adopting solutions that can support and manage their health. And I think the last strategy that I also highlight is around partnerships. So collaborations and partnerships can be extremely helpful in achieving these goals. And we in Canada for way too long have been relying on government and the public care system to solve all crises that we have in healthcare. And of course, they play a central role. But we have to understand and appreciate that there is a wide array of organizations, from not-for-profit organizations to patient advocacy groups to private organizations like pharmacies, pharmaceutical companies, lab and diagnostic companies that all play a role uh, in serving the patient. 
And I believe we need to leverage the full power of our Canadian health system supply chain to amplify the impact and realize equity for all. So those are just three strategies, and there are many more that I can get into, but these are three that I found can create some of the biggest impact. Maybe we can talk a little bit about policy and healthcare policy specifically. So how are we going to be able to evolve healthcare policy and initiatives to prioritize the principles of access and equity to ensure a truly fair and inclusive healthcare system for Canadians? Jim, I I wish I had a simple answer for a pretty complex question, but one thing that draws me into your question is your mention of the principles of access, equity, fairness, and inclusivity. So we do have to appreciate that our health system is rooted in values of fairness, equity, access, and inclusivity. And this is easily demonstrated by our social responsibility and sharing healthcare resources. We're not a private healthcare system. We're not a two-tiered system. So some of the initiatives, of course, that I mentioned, whether it is around data, technology to bridge gaps, integrating community voices into decision-making and fostering more partnerships can help address health equity issues. And of course, we need to evolve policies and initiatives in prevention and promotion to target those social determinants of health for those underserved communities. And we also need to focus on cultural, racial, gender competence amongst health organizations to better understand the diverse needs of those patients. And these are just some policies, and it's not lost on me that to truly address these, we need to make trade-offs because we're challenged with finite resources coupled with just normal challenges of political will that we see across provinces. But if we don't even have the dialogue and the experimentation of these initiatives, then we're going to fail and achieve those basic values of the Canadian healthcare system. I started you off with two pretty difficult ones, and I think they're going to continue to be difficult because this is this is a difficult topic. So on to Mark now. <laughs> Neil, it's Mark. So you were talking about public-private collaborations back there, and I just wonder if you could comment on what role they can play in healthcare, and can you provide any notable examples? So Mark, they play a huge role. And this goes back to my comment around leveraging the whole supply chain in healthcare that consists of public and private organizations. And the premise is simple. Let's create shared agreements that leverage the strengths, the access, and the resources across all players. And probably the most notable examples that all of us can relate to is the role pharmacies played during the pandemic in both testing and vaccinations. We had such a backlog in rolling out testing and vaccines through our public health units. And there was an outcry for access in a time where people were in fear and living with uncertainty. One of the biggest blessings was when pharmacies got the call from the government and we had your Shoppers Drug Mart, your Rexall, your London Drugs, your Walmart, and other retail pharmacies that put an infrastructure together in hours to help roll out testing and vaccines. And the reason I say it's a blessing is because they built trust in the roles as healthcare players. And now we're starting to see those same pharmacies getting a much wider role in healthcare. Now, we just saw pharmacists now being able to prescribe for minor ailments, as we just saw it passed in Ontario a few months ago. That's just a great example. Another example is how a lot of Canadian provinces have implemented public-funded, private-operated clinics to decrease surgical backlogs. That just ballooned during COVID as well. That has a massive impact on access as well. Or let's talk about the collaboration between 
Alberta Health Services, Boring or Ingelheim, Telus Health, Alberta Innovates and Health City, where they all came together to deliver a home health monitoring trial that was truly meant to provide more affordable, more efficient care for patients. That's a great example. And, and the last one, if I go a little bit east now to the Atlantic region, is the partnership we just saw a few years ago with Eastern Health in Newfoundland and Medtronic to decrease cardiac cath labs. And they were able to successfully drop wait times by a minimum of 40%, and I believe as high as 70% in some areas. So that's just remarkable. And, and the way they did it was through you know, these outcome-based agreements where it allows both parties to focus on shared outcomes and joint responsibility. And so you can see that there's all these great examples of partnerships, but they're still happening in pockets, but they can truly address inequity and improved health outcomes. That's good. So let's move on to education. And I wonder if you could comment on how we can improve healthcare literacy and education among disadvantaged communities to help people make more informed decisions about their healthcare. That's a fantastic question. So how can we improve healthcare literacy and education among disadvantaged communities? So I remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember the source off the top of my head, but 60% of adults in Canada are unable to understand their own health information. 60%. That's three in five adults. And to me, that's alarming. And that doesn't even take into account disadvantaged communities who we know are disproportionately impacted in health literacy. So we know that number is definitely higher than 60%. So the first thing we need to do to improve any sort of health literacy at a minimum is creating easy to understand health information. Let's use plain language and remove all that medical jargon out that we know are created by medical professionals. I've been guilty of this myself when I was a medical researcher, and I've been guilty of this as a consulting professional. But to drive adoption, we need to be able to take our own jargon out and let's take that one step further. And let's supplement that with visual aids for easier digestion. So that's step number one. Step number two, I should say the second strategy in how we do that it's by involving users of that information in the process. So in this case, let's bring in disadvantaged groups in creating, testing, and reiterating on the information based on their feedback. And what better way to ensure improved health literacy than involving those individuals in the solution? And then the last one would be creating educational materials that are not just medically oriented, but also culturally, gender, and racially appropriate. And let's use those materials to educate the healthcare organizations themselves who could benefit from how they deliver organizations in a sensitive manner. And I feel like we're making a lot of strides there for my conversations with healthcare organizations and also doing it through policies. Uh, and there's another area where private players can really help in building these materials, as in some cases they have the infrastructure and the resources to do this at scale. But those are just some ideas on how we can improve health literacy for sure. We're here with Shanil Abraham of the Life Sciences Practice at Deloitte on the NPC podcast. So Shanil, you're in a great position to answer this question. What is the one key challenge faced by the life sciences sector in Canada and how do we begin to address it? The one key challenge. Another easy question. <laughs> yeah, it's never easy, right? The one key challenge I would say is around funding. 
we need a sustainable source of funding to support R&D, innovation, commercialization of new products, and also enhancing our biomanufacturing capacity, which we really felt during the pandemic. And unfortunately, Canada is quite far behind other countries in both public and private investments that affects our growth and affects our competitiveness. But there is traction there. Um, we saw Government of Canada announcing the biomanufacturing and life sciences strategy a couple of years ago to invest, what was it, over $2 billion to strengthen Canadian life sciences sector and restore biomanufacturing facilities. Or just a few months ago, where the federal government announced a national strategy for drugs for rare disease and a commitment to invest about $1.5 billion to increase drug access and affordability. So there's movement there. But if I had to say the number one challenge, it would still be funding. We're still underfunded. And I feel like coming out of the pandemic, there was much more urgency around the funding. And even though it has not still come to full-blown reality, I feel like we're just starting to stand up the infrastructure that is needed as a result of the funding moving in the right direction. I think you're citing the hit song from the musical cabaret, Money Makes the World Go Around, but ever true. Back to Jim. So you're talking about areas where we're a little behind in Canada. Are there any particular areas within the life science sector where Canada actually has a competitive advantage or, or unique strengths? And if so, and I'm hoping so, how can we take advantage of any of these advantages and leverage them for the long term? That's a good question. I feel like there are two big advantages that we have in Canada. First, we have a remarkable environment for building highly skilled people in healthcare from academic institutions to research to AI ecosystems, to name a few. And with the right funding that I just talked about and the right innovation hubs, we can harness that power of those skills to do some remarkable things. So that's one. The second is we also have a very strong biotech and medtech ecosystem. And they continue to innovate and they play a strong role in fostering the collaborations that I spoke about previously with public health systems as well. And I feel that this, these two advantages can be a massive competitive differentiator for us globally. So you're talking about technology. You know? So what roles do you think this technology, digital innovation is going to be playing in shaping the future of the pharma industry? How's your organization adapting to these changes that are happening quite quickly and dramatically? Yeah, so technology plays a definitely a big, big role. And we saw that during the pandemic where digital technologies and adoption scaled overnight. And what I loved is that pharma, which in my view has traditionally been behind other sectors in digital innovation, has not only embraced it as a result of the pandemic, but many fundamentally believe that digital will now help them gain a competitive advantage in the years to come. And there are a lot of examples here, including improving patient recruitment and clinical trials, uh, expanding supply chains use of data and AI for drug discovery and understanding patients in need. So there's a lot of great examples. And we're still in the process of seeing this through in the companies that I end up working with as well. But companies are now moving from adopting digital in pockets to embracing it as part of their digital transformation. So I'm very optimistic with what I'm seeing and have been involved in as well. And this journey is very similar to Deloitte's own journey as well in how we're adapting uh, the use of technologies whether it's to have a hybrid work experience, how we use digital to reduce our carbon footprint, and also how we just generally better serve clients as well. So lots of exciting momentum, 
when it comes to Canada being in part of the digital transformation? So usually we ask our guests about whether their education influenced their career path. But in your case, you know, I see you're a clinical epidemiologist, a medical researcher, teaching and studying at Stanford, McMaster, York University, and the U of T. So I really wouldn't know where to begin. Would there be one or perhaps a combination of those qualifications that best explain your career journey? I think it's a combination of those experiences because my education has been pivotal to shaping my career in healthcare. And as you can tell from the institutions I've been involved in, it's very diverse and each of them gave me a different vantage point of what healthcare means. And I've been fortunate to see things from different lenses, whether it was as a bioethicist working with patients and families at the bedside, to seeing it from a population level as an epidemiologist, to seeing it from an R&D perspective as a researcher, uh, to being an educator as a faculty member, and now I'm working as a partner in a global firm where I get to work with leaders of healthcare organizations on some of their biggest problems. And this is why I see my education as, let's call it a journey of exploration and learning, which really hasn't stopped. And for me, I feel that this is the type of mindset that is important in a field that is very complex, but one that is also impactful where you can meaningfully improve the health outcomes of Canadian citizens as well. And I really think it's a diversity in my experience and education that has allowed me and still allows me on a daily basis to kind of connect those dots and serve the sector better. So, Shanil, as we wind down our podcast, we're going to invite you to play our word association game. So we're going to ask you to just go ahead and say the first thing that comes to mind in response to each of the following phrases or words. So are you ready? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give it a go. Partnerships. Amplification of impact. Access. Inclusion. Equity. Fairness. Innovation. Hypergrowth. Patient outcomes. The ultimate end goal. Digital transformation. Embracing change. Sustainability. A resilient healthcare system. Wow. All very nice answers. We're not too judgy, but we do judge anyway on this panel. And we're going to award you one a lot of points for those ones. Excellent answers. Thank you very much for those. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and finally, I guess it's time to put on your soothsayer's hat and enter into our prognostication corner spelt with a K because we really never had anybody look at the copy. What bold predictions are you willing to make about the life sciences industry and, and how you're going to be serving it during the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, bold predictions. Bold, very bold. And we won't be judgy. All right. I'm going to make them really bold then. So first, I strongly believe we are going to be the hub of technology-based innovation globally. As I mentioned, we have some of the strongest talent in AI, digital health, and research. And to me, these ecosystems are proliferating across hubs in Toronto, Edmonton, and Montreal, to name a few. And I feel these will result in some major breakthroughs in healthcare, whether it's diagnostics, therapeutics, or the like, that's going to put us at the forefront globally. So that's my first bull prediction. The second one and I don't know if this is a bold prediction or a bold hope, but 
I want Canada to become a global leader in biomanufacturing and vaccine. We felt how behind we were during the pandemic. And kudos to Canada in responding with several billions of dollars of investment. And although this may sound crazy as a bold prediction or hope to some, many may not know that we were once a leader in vaccine discovery and development, including discovery of insulin. And we were one of the first leaders in polio vaccine as well. So I strongly believe we have all the potential to be a leader once again, and that's going to be my ultimate bull prediction. Well, I hope you're right. That's certainly closing things on a bold note. So it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you, Chanel, and thank you for joining us in the gondola today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, and it was good to have a chat with yourself, Mitch, Jim, and Mark as well. Absolutely. And to everyone in podcast land, thank you for listening. We will speak to you again next week. If you have questions for Chanel, send them by email to health at chronicle.org. We invite your comments about today's episode, and we want to hear from you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and do make a point of sharing with your friends and your social network. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Or just ask your smart device to play the National Pharmaceutical Congress podcast on TuneIn Radio or Amazon Music. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Find out more at www.impress.com. I'm your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser, with assistance from Lovely Rayla. John Evans provided research. The musical theme is performed with consummate professionalism by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of maestro Sylvain Milbrook. We'll speak again soon.